Welcome to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Every episode of this podcast will bring in a variety of experts to help all writers incorporate more authentic cops, crime, and criminals in their stories. For this episode, perennial New York Times bestseller J.A. Jantz steps into the interrogation room to clear a few things up. J.A. started writing in the 60s when women were supposed to be teachers and nurses, not writers. In 1968, a publisher expressed interest in a children's story she'd written, but her novels didn't reach the public until 1985 with the first J.P. Beaumont story, entitled Until Proven Guilty. Since the beginning of that series, J.A.'s published works, if my account is right, includes 70 novels in four series and a book of poetry. Her latest release in this acclaimed and beloved series is called Sins of the Father, and releases on September 24th, and is currently available for pre-order at an internet near you. Welcome to Writers on the Beat, Jay. It's an honor to have you here and to take a few moments of your time. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. I'm glad we have overcome our mutual technological challenges to make this work. Uh, Weren't our smartphones supposed to make us smarter? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's the phone that's smart, not the user, especially mine. Uh, It's it's terrible. (laughs) I'm I'm reading through Sins of the Father now, and this is an incredible story, but both in its composition and the plot. And for readers who are new to you and and J.P. Beaumont, what would you like them to know about Sins of the Father? Well, Sins of the... I've been writing about J.P. Beaumont since 1982. So he and I have been author and character for a very long time. And his books are always told in the first person. So... As both the reader and the writer, you're hearing and seeing what Beaumont hears and sees, but you're also hearing what's going on in his in his head, which isn't yes. always politically <laughs> correct. No. But but this story has its origin in one of my very early Beaumont books, a, a book called Taking the Fifth. Mm-hmm. And when I was going I had the idea for this book. And then in order to write it, I needed to go back and reread Taking the Fifth because that was a long time ago. And holy smokes, I was (laughs) I was surprised by how unpolitically correct everybody was in the nineteen eighties. Yes. And when he hopped into the sack with a virtual stranger, I was that was jaw dropping too. But that hop in the bed Mm-hmm. in the 1980s, is what has now come back to haunt J.P. Beaumont in his mid-70s in retirement. Now I, I Somebody want... knocks on the door, they show up with a baby, and mm-hmm. oops, there's an <laughs> oopsie there. <laughs> now, I wonder, having known J.P. since 1982, um, does that even come close to making him one of your oldest friends, accomplices, and confidants? Absolutely. Yes. I've known him for a very long time. And when I start to write one of his books, it's really interesting. Within a matter of a few pages, Mm -hmm. I'm back in his world. I'm back in his mindset and laughing at his jokes. And it seems like he's telling the jokes to me. It doesn't seem like I'm writing them. It's really, well, I guess it's sort of schizophrenic. (laughs) But (laughs) Yes. Yeah. 
But what a what a wonderful place to be, you know, with uh, with old friends at a place that's comfortable that they're, you know, telling you all of their inner darkest secrets. You probably know him better than you know any single person on earth. I I think that's true. For instance, I know from the very first book that Bo was raised by a single mother and a single unwed mother, by the way, mm-hmm. in the aftermath of World War II when they lived in an apartment above a bakery. Mm-hmm. And so Bo was a kid of, of approximately my age. I, I gave him my birthday so I wouldn't forget how old he is. <laughs> uh, but uh, he never, because he lived upstairs in an apartment, he never had a pet. Oh, and yeah. so for him to have his first dog, a dog that appeared in the previous book, mm-hmm. Proof of Life. For him to have his first dog ever in his mid-70s is a big shock to the system. Yes. And to have that first dog not be a little cuddly puddle, a puppy, yeah. but an immense Irish wolfhound. Holy smoke, this is a big change for him. Yes. And, and that's one of the things I like about Beaumont. He has adjusted to change. Mm-hmm. I, Someone wrote to me about one of the early Beaumonts and said, why is Bo always walking around Seattle looking for a pay phone and a quarter? Why doesn't he just use his cell? <laughs> and I wrote back and I said, look at the publication date because cell phones didn't go on sale in 19, until 1986. And I, I knew this personally because my now husband, my second husband, the mm-hmm. good one, yes. designed that first gray brick cell phone wow. for Motorola in 1968. So, uh, so those first Beaumont books are legitimately historical fiction. <laughs> yeah, I didn't have my first cell phone until about 1997 or 98. So I didn't realize I was a full decade, uh, 12 years behind the times. Wow. Well, and, and Beaumont has been dragged kicking and screaming into mm-hmm. the technological age and the fact that he now routinely does all those crossword puzzles on his iPad yes. is, is screamingly funny to those of, to, to my readers who have watched this gradual mm-hmm. transformation. But I, I think it's important for me as a writer, it's important to have my characters age and change over time. If they, mm-hmm. I, I know Sue Grafton maintained her piece of the 70s. And the 70s were, I'm sorry, the 70s weren't very good for me. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But, but Beaumont has gotten older. Mm-hmm. My, my Arizona sheriff, Joanna Brady, mm-hmm. has changed. She's had, she's had a couple of kids since I met her. Uh, but for me, it's important that people... I've changed, and it's important that my characters change as yes. well. Now, I spoke with uh, with Ian Rankin a while back about John Rebus and aging that character. He's been writing him only for about half as long as, as you've been writing Beaumont. And he uh, he talked a lot about the need for him to, uh, to age uh, with time and in real life, but also that, you know, even uh, kind of as you've mentioned, He's uh, these older characters, um, you know, need to be a little bit authentic in terms of, you know, dealing with technological difficulties and keeping up with, you know, the pace of change, especially in the police world. And I wonder how much work and effort you put in, 
in keeping the the cops and the procedures kind of around Beaumont up to date without, you know, making him a, a technocrat? Well, I really, I try hard to do that. I, I'm, I'm going to tell you a little secret right now. It's just my you and me talking. And I, <laughs> <laughs> my husband and I are having house guests this weekend, and the guy who's coming happens to be one of my heroes, and I'm sure he will be a well-known entity to you. It's, his name is Joe Kenda. <laughs> oh, you're kidding. I've been trying to get an interview with, with Lieutenant Kenda for like six months. That's fantastic. I am so jealous. Okay. You, <laughs> you send me an email saying, please print this and hand it to <laughs> Lieutenant Joe Kenda. I will give it to him tomorrow. <laughs> but, that way I can know for but, sure that I got turned but, down by the man. <laughs> well, you know, a lot of times it's impossible to get through publicity yes. screens to yes. get to the real person. And, and I mentioned Joe Kenda's name and somebody was teasing Bo about retiring and was he going mm-hmm. to turn into the next Lieutenant Joe Kenda. Uh-huh. So I was in Newport News and a lady came up to me and she said, you put my husband in your book. And I said, excuse me? She said, Joe, Joe Kenda. He's my husband. <laughs> I said, you're Joe Kenda's wife? Oh. She said, yeah, he's right over there. And that's how I met them. Well, I I would be just as interested to talk to her about what her life has been like as the spouse of of him and everything that his career's gone through. I mean, she has to have some equally fantastic stories about the the realities of well, and, police work. Yes, and but but in answer to your previous question, I whenever I watch a, one of the I watch a lot of investigation discovery. My husband mm-hmm. would rather watch Home yes. Garden TV <laughs> or the Food Network. But when when I see a crime that dates from the 70s or the 60s, what goes to, through my head is okay, no DNA, mm-hmm. no uh, no CODIS, yep. no APHIS, yep. and so I do I do try to keep. A rest of what's going on in uh, criminology mm-hmm. advances, but and I and I try to drop them in, but I don't want to turn my books into a technical true crime thing. That's mm-hmm. so. There's, but but I try to I try to keep I try to be as authentic as I can be considering I'm a recovered librarian and have never been a police officer. Well, and and that's something that really immediately strikes me about uh, the Beaumont series and and especially sins of the father is that it just drips with authenticity that even as a retired cop, it feels very much like either you have personal police experience or you have very close advisors giving you a whole lot of, very accurate and personal knowledge about the inner mentality of police officers as you did a fantastic job with this and I apparently ha- have been for some time. I did not have any police experience. I, I was, uh, my first husband was a witness in a serial homicide case that took place in the early seventies in Tucson. And so I watched from the sidelines as the homicide detective solved that case based in large measure on, on 
the information my husband was able to provide. Wow. But I, but that's the closest I've ever been to a real uh, crime situation. Mm-hmm. And when I wrote Beaumont initially, physically, he really resembled Jack Lyons, who was Pima County's chief homicide investigator back in 1970. Wow. But so... But when I come to the job of writing about police officers, I come to that job knowing that they're people first. And I I think I think I've that's been my my saving grace, that they are always people before they are cops. And I, I Does really, that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I really appreciate that. It's, it's, it's something that um, I think really gets lost in a lot of the conversation, a lot of the, the, the dialogue around cops and even around writing cops um, is that, you know, cops are not these robotic automatons that are going to, you know, always follow procedure or, you know, they'd never, you know, have you know, uh, bias or have their own expectations or their own agendas. Um, They come from the population just like every other profession. So there's going to be a whole variety of folks in in the job. Um, And some of them might not be nice, but the vast majority of them are really decent, caring people Mm -hmm. who signed up because they wanted to help people. Yes. Yep. So that's, that's where I am. And I think that's what rings so true in this book is Bo's overriding sense of decency. Yes. He's a little surprised by by the result. He didn't expect <laughs> to have a newly discovered daughter and granddaughter in his mid-70s. This is a big shock to his system. Yes. But I think he accepts that reality with a good deal of grace. And I think the way his wife mel Soames mm-hmm. responds is i think she is the epitome of the cop spouse who really rolls with the bunches yeah and uh, and she has as a chief of police herself you know she has a lot more understanding than than most but the relationship between them is is really fantastic the way that the way that you've laid that out or that they introduced that to you um, it it feels incredibly authentic. Well, I I can't tell you how much I appreciate hearing those words from someone like you. So thank you. <laughs> now, for writers who are composing, you know, their own, you know, cops and robbers caper, I, I wonder what advice you would offer someone starting out to best set them off in the right direction for publication and commercial success in this genre right now. Well. I, I'm not sure how to, what to say except to say write. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first book I ever wrote <clears throat> was a uh, very thinly fictionalized version of that serial killer case in Tucson that I told you about. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a guy who killed people at 20 minutes after two on the 22nd day of the month. Wow. And about, about 45 minutes after he shot, raped a woman, 
and left her to die in the desert, leaving her two small children there. Mm. He gave my husband a ride home. Oh, my God. Wow. And on the way up to our house, we lived out in the middle of the desert, 30 miles from town, seven miles to the nearest neighbor and or telephone. He said, oh, do you leave your wife out here by herself much? And my husband said, well, she's got the dogs. But he had no idea he was talking to a serial serial killer. So the first book I ever wrote, it was a manuscript called By Reason of Insanity. And it was 1,400 pages long. Mm -hmm. And it never sold to anybody. Because, number one, it was 1,400 pages long. (laughs) So my, my agent said, cut it in half. So I went home and took out half the book and gave it back to her Mm -hmm. and she tried to sell it and um, the editors who turned it down said the stuff that was fiction was fine and the stuff that was real was unbelievable and would never happen even though it had already (laughs) happened that's incredible my agent said well why don't you try writing something that's completely fiction so I wrote until proven guilty which became the first Beaumont book which sold to the second editor who saw it. And wow. by the way, the agent who never sold my first book mm-hmm. has sold all of my books since then. Wow. So I think, I think one piece of advice I would like to give beginning writers is this. If you are fortunate enough to get an agent and your agent can't sell your first book, keep the agent and fire the first book and write another book. <laughs> Perfect. Because so so often the those authors cling to that first mm-hmm. manuscript, yes, and it's just not ready for prime time, and that writing that first fourteen hundred word manuscript was my on the job training for writing. Yes. I wasn't allowed in the creative writing program because I was a girl. So, uh, but later on, mm-hmm. I, that's what the professor told me. Girls become teachers or nurses. Boys become writers. But back to the agent thing. I meet meet so many authors who just cling to that first book. Well, if you are somebody who thinks every word that comes out of your computer is golden, then maybe you should rethink the idea of being a writer because writers have editors. And Mm -hmm. editors make you take stuff out. Yeah, you can't be that emotionally attached to every aspect of everything you ever put down. Right. And so uh, my advice would be write every day. Um, My first husband died of chronic alcoholism at age 42, a year and a half after I divorced him. When I started writing about about Beaumont, it was a first-person narrative. Mm-hmm. He had to do something when he wasn't at work. So write what you know, right? So yep. I knew a lot about drinking. So Beaumont did <laughs> a lot of drinking. So the fourth book, the fourth book, a person came to me at a, a signing and said, Beaumont drinks every day. He has a drink of choice. It's starting to interfere with his work. Does J.P. Beaumont have a problem? And I said, these are books. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yes. then six more people, <laughs> six six more people asked me the same question. I thought, "Holy smokes, I'm the last person to figure it out." He really does have a problem. 
which is how Bo ended up getting into treatment. But what's amazing is I've heard from so many breeders over the years who said that watching Beaumont work through his alcoholism helped them work through theirs. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That is an unbelievable compliment for you to have impacted quite accidentally, I imagine, so many people's lives in such a positive way beyond just entertaining them. That's that's incredible. Well, one of the one of the things that is the really important takeaway from Sins of the Fathers is that the real hero of this story isn't J.P. Beaumont. It's Alan Dale, mm-hmm. the guy in his 60s who has lost his wife, lost his daughter to drug abuse. His daughter is alive, but just completely over the, uh, off the charts. And he is the guy who answered the call and goes to the hospital to take care of his drug-addicted newborn grandchild. Yeah, who, as it turns out, happens to be Beaumont's drug-addicted <laughs> newborn grandchild. What a web but we weave there, so long ago. There are so many grandparents mm-hmm. in this in this world mm-hmm. who are are raising their grandchildren yes. because their kids are totally on the moon. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a really hard reality right now. Um, and it's becoming a lot more common than I think it's, it's been. So, so there, those people, this is, this book is sort of a tribute mm-hmm. to all of those people who are doing that incredibly tough work. Now, I, I wonder what, what it is that you wish you knew at the beginning of your writing career that you've learned over the last 30-odd years, that if you could go back in time and tell yourself, what would it be? I would... I wish I had known how rewarding it would be. I would... One of the things I value the very most is being able to uh, connect with readers who send me emails. One, one woman wrote to me, she was reading my books while her husband was uh, in the final stages of Alzheimer's. Oh, wow. And um, I sent her that passage from Sins of the Fathers where mm-hmm. Beaumont goes to see Corky and he says to Corky's wife, how do you, you know, Corky doesn't know who she is. He doesn't know. He thinks Beaumont is his brother and his brother has been dead for 20 years. Yeah. And Beaumont says to his wife, how do you do this? And she said, with patience. Yes. And... And so I sent that that passage before the book was even published. I sent that passage to Rosemary, and Rosemary has become a friend. I also, and she also, uh, she ended up buying my book after the fire. After the fire is a little book of poetry 
but it's also my autobiography and poetry and prose. And it's the story of my journey with that first husband who died of booze at such an early age. And it was doing a poetry reading of that book in 1985, where I met my second husband, the good one. (laughs) (laughs) Bill says that, uh, that my, my first husband was so bad it made his life perfect. (laughs) But, But Rosemary sent me a note yesterday and she said, I keep after the fire on the desk and I reread it every once in a while. It's it's only it's like a little wow. seventy page book. Mm-hmm. She said I reread it when I need to. And and she's so she's become a friend. I've never met her. I may meet her sure. someday. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? I met Joe Kenda. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> but uh it's it's I wish I had known how much I would relish having the chance to meet my readers and to know how my, how my storytelling has impacted their lives. Mm. The, the ancient sacred charge of the storyteller is to beguile the time. And there is no time on the, in the universe more in need of beguiling than when you're seated at the bedside of a loved one who is dealing with some incredibly awful health crisis. And when I hear from those people, it really means a lot to me. Yes. Apparently as much as it means to them. Now, as a writer, I I imagine you're probably also a pretty avid reader. And I wonder if you have a favorite fictional detective or investigator in TV books or film. Well, my favorite investigator is is Lieutenant John Kent, Joe Kenda. <laughs> <laughs> well, then uh, actually that I, makes this ne- uh, the 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 last question then incredibly easy because I, I think we've already got the answer here. I, I ask this of all the authors that come on the show, Ja. But if you were to wake up tomorrow and find that you've been murdered, what fictional investigator, assassin, or revenge artist would you assign your own homicide? If you kill, I will find you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, then you will be avenged. I, I, uh, I, I don't think, uh, I think Joe's batting average is, uh, is probably even over a thousand if that's possible. I think his, uh, his murder, uh, solve, or, uh, murder investigations solve other cases. Yes. Uh, I, anyway. And, you know, Somebody has, people have asked me, well, if I, if I had a chance to sit down with a fellow author, who would it be? Well, mm-hmm. I would have tea with Daphne du Maurier and Agatha Christie. Oh, wow. I think Agatha Christie yes. and I have a lot in common in terms of sort of loser first husbands and really good second ones. Uh, and, and I like to think, but I think I like J.P. Beaumont a whole lot better than she ended up liking Hercule Poirot. Yes. <laughs> well, I, I greatly appreciate you making time for us today, J.A. It's been an absolute pleasure and an honor to speak with you today.
Thank you, Gavin. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters, a copyrighted broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and this episode's guest has been the critically acclaimed and prolific bestseller, J.A. Jans. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there.